this morning to the book of Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. We're going to read the uh, very familiar verses of the Christmas story this morning. And then take from that story, not only from those verses, but for, from other supporting verses surrounding the Christmas story, uh, three truths this morning that I hope will prepare our hearts in fresh and new ways for for this season. So Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, reads this way. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, or as the King James says, taxed. This was, for, uh, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the end. Those seven verses are very familiar, even to those who may not be uh, Christians. Uh, since I think it was in 19, maybe 64, where the uh, uh, Charlie Brown Christmas special was uh, first uh, aired on, on television. We have Linus, who reads to us these first seven verses of Luke chapter 2. And so this morning, I want us to simply take a look at this familiar passage, but not do it with familiar eyes, but hopefully, with the help of the Holy Spirit, do it with fresh eyes. I don't know about you. I, I know Crystal and Curtis feel this way, because I know they're Christmas freaks. They love Christmas. They start Christmas at Halloween. Um, but I love Christmas. It's, it's my favorite holiday uh, of the year uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, probably the most major one is that um, it, it's, it's a time of family. Um, it's, it's a time of tradition. I, I love traditions. And so for me, there's so many traditions in my life wrapped up in the season of Christmas. But I love Christmas also because it, it forces me to be reminded again of the depth of Christ's condensation for a rebel like me. The depth is infinite because my sin is infinite. And His righteousness is infinite because His value is infinite. What a striking scene, right, that Luke captures here for us with his pen. It is filled with all kinds of irony and theological beauty. There is Mary, the mother of Jesus, 
wrapping up the second person of the Trinity in swaddling clothes. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. You see, the Son of God became the Son of a virgin. Think about that for a second. The, the Son of God became the Son of a virgin. The Creator comes to dwell among His creation. The one who swaddled the stars with darkness. And if you think that word swaddle, that's the first time we ever hear it in Scripture, you need to go back to Job chapter 38, verse 9. We, we won't this morning, but you might want to write that down because that's actually the first time the word swaddled is ever used in the Bible. And it's used with, uh, in speaking of uh, God who swaddled the stars with darkness. Now this same God who swaddled stars in darkness is now clothed in cloth as a baby. Christ, the Lord God, becomes a man and dwells among men, according to John 1.14. But listen, we cannot stare at, at the manger before it begins to change. Informed by the rest of Scripture, we begin to see the looming shadow of the cross emerge upon it. Do you remember what Matthew taught us in Matthew 121? That Jesus was what? He was born to die. We see the baby here swaddled in rags, but in due time, he is going to be clothed in the rags of our rebellion, of our sin. He did this so that we could be vested with infinite merit. Jesus, who was wrapped in the garments of humility, dresses his children in the merits of his righteousness. And this Jesus will, by His perfect obedience, earn the everlasting righteousness that will be credited to people like you and me. So I've tagged this morning's text, Christmas in the key of C. The key of C is the most common, is the most common used key in music compositions. And this morning's truths are common and all begin with the letter C. So it should be very easy to remember. No new truths this morning. Only more serious reflection on what we already know to be true. I wish we'd quit looking for something new and start realizing of really how little of the old we really know. So truth number one. Christmas reminds us of our true condition. Christmas reminds us of our true condition. Let me just give you some scripture to remind us this morning of what our true condition is. What is our true condition? Well, look, Paul writes about it. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin. Now, this is Ephesians chapter 2. We've read this text so many times in our... Uh, in our church, we probably should all have it memorized. But look, look I want to point out some key words here that remind us of what our condition was like. If you're a Christian, what it was like before you met Christ. And if you're not a Christian, what it's like right now for you. The first word is dead. 
you were dead in trespasses and sin. How many of y'all know that being dead is a pretty hopeless situation? How many of y'all know being dead is pretty helpless? Paul goes on to say, in which you once walked. Now, he's writing to people who are Christians. All he's trying to do is get them to remember what their life was like before Christ. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at now at work in the sons of disobedience. Who's he talking there? He's talking about Satan. He's talking about those who are dead and trespasses and sin. Guess what? They have, a, they have a Lord. They have a ruler. They have a God. They have a boss. And his name is Satan. And they follow his ways. They obey his commands. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Because that's how Satan rules people. He rules them by the desires and the passions of their flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. You get what he's saying there? By nature, that means something that you were born with, not something that you just began to do, but it is something that you do because it has always been there. Science would call it DNA. It's encoded into us. We never become a sinner. We are a sinner from the very get-go. No one is born pristine into this world as some psychology wants to make us believe that babies are pristine in their psychology. No, all human beings once conceived, are conceived with brokenness, are conceived, conceived in sin. Not that the act of procreation is sin, but the fact that we are born of man says that we are born sinners, and therefore that's why we sin. Then in that same chapter of Ephesians chapter 2, we read these words. Remember that you were... That you were at that time, separated from Christ. There, there's another key word, separated. Alienated. Again, another key word, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And here's a third word, strangers to the covenants of promising. Now watch, here's the key, having no hope and without God in the world. Christmas reminds us of our true condition. And what is that true condition? that we are hopeless and helpless without God. We are hopeless and helpless without God. And all of those words that I pointed out to you are words that remind us of how truly hopeless and helpless we are. Arthur uh, Mark Twain received so many photos from men claiming to look like him that he composed this letter uh, to send out. And this is what the letter said. My dear sir, I thank you very much for the letter and your photograph. In my opinion, you are more like me than any other of my numerous doubles. I may even say that you resemble me more closely than I do myself. In fact, I intend to use your photograph to shave by. 
Twain's humorous letter helps to illustrate a serious spiritual truth. When we hold up the Bible to our lives, the, pic- the picture it gives of us, of ourselves, really is more accurate than what we see in the mirror because the Bible does what? It really shows us our hearts. It shows us that we are hopeless and helpless without Christ. Point number two this morning. Christmas not only reminds us of our true condition, but it reveals God's charity. Now I'm using that word charity uh, in place of the word love because if you read uh, your Bible in the Old King James, that is the common used word for God's love is, is charity. God's charity is love. How does God reveal His love? He does that by condescending for our condemnation. He does that by condescending for our condemnation. You see, God reveals His love in His condescension. Do you know what the word condescension really means? Or condescending means? It means to put aside one's dignity or superiority, listen, voluntarily, and to assume equality with one regarded as inferior. That's a pretty good definition. To put aside one's own dignity or superiority voluntarily and to assume equality with one regarded as inferior. You see, Jesus gets inside our skin to get us out of sin. Did you get that? He gets inside our skin to get us out of sin. Instead of requiring ascension for salvation, God takes on flesh and becomes the means of our salvation. Listen, this is the reason why I use the the phrase that instead of requiring ascension, that he descends, because religion teaches, uh, teaches man that in order to be saved, he must ascend the hill of the gods through his work. Think of, I mean, if you know anything about Greek mythology, what do we know about Greek mythology? All of the Greek gods did what? They, they required... Sacrifice for salvation. Right? If you wanted to have success in your fishing, then what did you do? Then you offered a sacrifice to who? Anybody know who the God of the sea was? Huh? Poseidon. You want safe journey on the seas? Offer a sacrifice to Poseidon. You wanted to have success in whatever area, then you offered a sacrifice of salvation to that particular God. Christianity teaches that Christ, through His work, ascended the hill of death so that we could ascend the hill of God. You remember that verse in in uh, Psalm twenty four where it says, "Who can ascend the hill of God? Only only those who have clean hands and a pure heart." Well, who has that? Only Jesus. 
Only Jesus can ascend the hill of God. And now because He's ascended the hill of God, guess what? You and I too can ascend the hill of God. But the only way we get to do that is because He came down so that we could go up. God doesn't send judgment for our sin, but Jesus as the propitiation. That is the, the sacrifice, but it's more than sacrifice. It's the sacrifice that satisfies for our sin. You see, God whom we sinned against satisfies His wrath by sacrificing Jesus. We're going to look at that in just a moment in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 verse 9 may be for me becoming one of my favorite verses in the Bible because it just simply blows everything out of the water when it reminds us that God is the one who is been sinned against and yet and who's and, 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 and who deserves to be repaid and yet God himself in the person of Jesus comes down and sacrifices himself to appease, to propitiate, to satisfy his own wrath. Jesus' condescension was not in response to our goodness. Hey, let's all admit this morning, no one, none of us are good. But, uh, but his being God, that's, that was why he responded. He didn't look down and see us doing good, and therefore he decided to come down and die for good people. That's not it. God condescended in love because that's what he is. He is love. God loves the world because he, he is love, not because there is something lovable. So let's, let's look at these verses. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. Again, it should be familiar to everybody. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. Does that get everybody? Everybody. Even the best person you know is not good. And it's and, and listen, good is always in relationship to what it's being compared against, right? So God is absolutely perfect. So, right? That's the standard of goodness is God, holiness, perfection. So no one is good. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Do you think Paul's trying to emphasize something to us this morning? <laughs> their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. That's pretty depressing. That's a bad situation to be in. That's a bad group of people. Well, guess what? That's the group of people you're a part of. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now, listen to everything that I'm about to say, because if you only hear the first part, you're not going to fully understand, and you're going to make a false accusation. God hates sin and those who sin. Do not mistake 
that God only hates sin. God hates sin and sinners. And the Bible is, uh, over and over again, teaches us that truth. And He does so because He is absolutely holy. However, He loves those who sin, and He proves this love by becoming human. He incarnates Himself so that He can bear everything He hates about humanity so that His enemies can become His children. There's a great new emoji on, uh, on the iPhone, the, the newest update. Uh, it's the emoji where your head is, coming, is being blown off. Y'all, y'all seen that emoji? If you text me, I, I usually send it to people. I just like using it. I find a way to use the... And, when, and, and like, so this morning, I was trying to find a way to put that emoji on the screen, like after every point, just like... It's blown. My mind is blown. He bears everything he hates about humanity so that his enemies can become his children. Now here's Romans 5. And watch this. These are great verses. This, these are the best verses in the Bible, maybe. For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Y'all remember that phrase, at the right time? We looked at it last week, right? About when Jesus was born, at the right time. Well, guess what? He died at the right time. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But do you remember what I just taught you in Romans 3? Guess what? There's not even some good people to die for. Why? Because nobody's good. But God shows His love for us in that while we were not good people, evil, children of the devil, following the devil's ways, hating God, loving sin, in total absolute rebellion against God, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for your good day. He didn't wait for you to get it all together. He didn't wait for you to clean up. He didn't wait for uh, for you to put together a couple of good days in a row to come down. He did it while you and I were at our worst. Christ died for us. He keeps going. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. That's that verse 9. That's the verse. It's like, what? Much more shall we be saved by Him, Jesus, from what? God's wrath. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, We shall be saved, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. And you know what? Reconciliation, you want the basic kids terminology for that definition? When enemies become friends. 
That's what it means to be reconciled. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, according to Revelation 19.6. This ought to be David's life verse. I don't know if it is, David, but it should be. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Little little sidebar here. When people would always talk about how satanic tattoos were and how you should never get a tattoo and how that's ungodly to have a tattoo and how Jesus would never have a tattoo. And I'm like, he's got a tattoo. It says on his thigh, he's got written, King of kings and Lord of lords. I'm not necessarily saying that gives you, you know, that's the biblical reason to go get a tattoo. It's a little bit more in-depth than that. Not that the Bible's anti-tattoo, but here it is. And Jesus has got it all the way down his thigh. That's that's, that's a lot of coverage. I don't know what that would cost in the old tattoo world. That's a lot of ink, though, it looks like to me. Kings, listen, think about that. Think about what it's saying. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Well, here's what I know about kings. They don't condescend to rebellious subjects. They condemn them and they crush them. King Jesus condescended not to crush rebellious subjects, but to bear their curse and be crushed by them. In Genesis 3, God said that the ground would... uh, In Genesis 3, God said that the ground would be cursed with what? Thorns and thistles, right? Why? So that man would always have before him a reminder of his rebellion. He went on to tell man's enemy, Satan, that he would bruise the heel of his son, but that his son would what? Crush his head. Jesus does not appear to crush sinners, He appears to crush the enemy of sinners. Look at this verse in 1 John 3, 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy or crush the works of the devil. Now we see this. Uh, this astounding reality when the Roman soldiers mocked and scourged Jesus. What did they they repeat? You remember that scene in the Gospels where they began to put the robe onto his back and the crown of thorns on his head? What were they saying? Hail, King of the Jews. Don't pass off this event as as symbolic for as symbolic, because its substance is the gospel. Here is the king of the world, literally and figuratively, having a crown of thorns placed on his head. Why? To say to you and me, that guess what? Now, what I'm about to say is not a reflection of the joy of the world that we sang this morning. I did some research this week on Joy to the World. Do you know I listened to 64 different versions of Joy to the World? I know. 
You should say you should find something better to do with your time, right? But I was after something. The third verse of Joy to the World. I'm not going to give it to you, but you should, you should look for the third verse of Joy to the World where it talks about that Jesus comes to overcome the curse for us. And he does. And that's what's symbolic about that crown of thorns is that Jesus is overcoming the curse that had been placed on mankind. But I had listened to 64 different versions of Joy to the World and not one, and now I'll add 65 because not even the version we sang this morning, uh, had the third verse in it. And to be honest with you, it's probably the most important verse the most theologically rich verse, the biggest hallelujah shout, give you a reason to run down the block and back verse of the whole hymn. We should ponder the profundity that the king of all majesty came down to be a victim of all of man's misery. How can our infinite minds measure the descent of Christ when they cannot even comprehend the distance from which He came? Well, we must, even though we have these finite minds and they are truly limited in the scope of their comprehension, listen to me this morning, we must join Paul in his Ephesians 3 prayer and we must pray for strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the height and the breadth and the length and the, and the depth of God's love for us. You see, the world's system of salvation teaches that gods don't become sacrifices, they only accept them. But the Word teaches only God can pay for sin, for only God can forgive sin. Do you remember, that's what Jesus got in trouble for when He forgave sin. What did they say? Only God can forgive sin. So the God-man appears to do what? To reconcile the debt of sin. The Son of God became a man so that men could become sons of God. Christ became what we are so that we could become what He is, a Son of God. He, he is God with us so that we could be God with Him. I mean, so, excuse me, so that we could be with Him. Jesus became Emmanuel, that means God with us, on earth, so that He can be our Emmanuel throughout eternity. Now write this down. This, uh, uh, those of you watching online, I think this should be uh, on the online portion. I think it'll be, might not be on the screen in here or not. I don't know. I don't know if I put it on for you guys. But you've heard it before and I'll quote it to you. So I'm going to sum up the first two points and get to the third one this way. So Christmas reminds us of our condition. Christmas reveals to us God's charity. And here's how you can put those two statements together. You are more sinful than you ever thought you were. You are more sinful than you ever thought you were. And you are more loved than you ever dreamed you could be. You are more sinful than you ever thought you were, and 
you are more loved than you ever dreamed you could be. So that leads me to my third and final point this morning. Christmas reinforces Christ's claim. Christmas reinforces Christ's claim. I'm going I'm to end with a, a couple of verses and a story, and then that's it. So watch the verses as they come up on the screen. Listen. What was Christ's claim? He made two claims. Claim number one, anyone can experience Christmas. I like that word, anyone. Anyone can experience Christmas. Look at these verses. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But watch this. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave right to become the children of God. How about John 6.37? All that the Father gives me will come to me. Now watch this. And whoever comes to me, what does he say? I will, what? Never cast out. How many of you have been rejected before? How many of you have been cast aside before? Think about what Jesus is saying. I will, if you come to me, I will in no wise, I will never cast you out. Then how about these words? Come. And in, and in the Greek, this word come is very strong. It, one uh, commentator said that you could literally say, you could read it as, Come here! I know that got everybody right. It just all of a sudden just got loud. And the kids were like, I hear that a lot. <laughs> Come here! All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Do you know that uh, this verse is the only verse that ever tells us anything about God's about the heart of Jesus? And then when it talks about the heart of Jesus, it says that He is gentle and lowly in heart. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A guy named David Whitford wrote an article in uh, Fortune magazine about his father's death. And in the article in Fortune magazine, he talked about that he was shocked upon his father's death to realize that his dad had ran up uh, six figures in high-interest credit card debt prior to his death. Now, there were clues that something financially was amiss in his final days. And uh, David had spoken to his father about, um, you know, about what was going on. Even though he did not know exactly what was going on, he just felt like there was something going on under the surface uh, that was not good. And his father became very exacerbated at David's questions and prodding about 
you know, Dad, if something's going on, let me know. If you're in trouble, let me know. If you got a problem, let me know. We can work this out. We can get through this. We can overcome anything. Just on and on and it went. And, and David said that there came a point in time when his, father's just, his father finally put his hands over his ears and made a loud humming noise. Because he just simply didn't want to hear what his father had to say. Two days after Whitford's father died, David Whitford, now listen, found these words scrawled on his father's desk. It's four words, and they are scary. Help me, I'm drowning. Listen, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, if you've never experienced Christ's claim that anyone that will come to Him, He will save, and you die without Christ, you die just like David Whitford's father died. You died with having written, Help me, I'm drowning, and a life preserver is laying right there. Help is available. Help is here now. Salvation stands on the other side of you simply reaching out in all of your weakness, in all of your shame, in all of your sinfulness, in all of your inability to save yourself and cry out to the King of kings and the Lord of lords and simply say to Him, Save me from me. And He will. He will. Don't be like David Whitford's father. Don't die saying, Help me, I'm drowning. When all means of rescue are available to you at this moment. And that leads me to, the, to this. Not only can anyone experience Christmas, that's Jesus' first claim, but his last claim was, Anyone can explain Christmas. Anyone can explain Christmas. Look at these verses out of Matthew 28. You know them, but look at them. And Jesus came and said to them, now he's leaving. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Okay? Watch. Because he has that, he now says, Go therefore and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Spirit. There's the key word, teaching them. If you're a Christian, you have within you the capability and the capacity to explain to anyone the Christmas message. Educated, uneducated, uh, you can read, you don't have the ability to read. You have the... You can explain the story of Christmas. Why? Because the authority that God has, He now has passed on to you, and He gives you authority to become a proclaimer of this message. Now, I love how this verse ends. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Do you know why you can have confidence not only because Jesus has given you authority, but because He will always be with you in explaining the message.
I got a, I got a buddy of mine that I've, I've been talking to about Jesus for a long time, and that conversation's kind of stirred itself back up uh, recently. And uh, we've had some long, deep conversations about uh, Christianity and about what his hang-ups are and where his struggles are. And, uh, you know, and I just kept telling him, I said, hey, man, um, he says, I want to believe. And I said, well, but, but, but he, he won't just take that, that next step. And you know what's been interesting is that in each time that I've been able to share the gospel with him, God has given me a unique, not in, not in that it's not ever been used before, but I mean a unique way previous to the time before. Just another way to say the same thing in a different way. And, and I tell you, I, I, I've been frustrated because I, I, I care for this guy so much and, and, I, and I desperately want, and want to see him become a Christian because he'll be a great Christian because it's just, it's just in his nature. It's his personality. When he's all in on something, he's all in on something. And uh, so this past week, he came, he came to me and he said, hey, he said... Uh, he said, what, what's our schedule like Christmas Eve? I said, well, you know, da-da-da this, da-da-da. He said, you think there's any way I might could leave at about 12 or 1? Well, yeah, I don't, I don't think there'd be anything wrong with it. I said, well, what's, what's going on? He said, well, he said, I think you'll be excited to know. He said, I'm, I'm going to a Christmas Eve church service. I was like, I said, really? I said, Why? He said, I just feel like something's drawing me there. That was his word, draw. I was like, <laughs> yeah, I know, what that, I know what that is. He said, I just really feel like I need to go to this. And I said, then you probably should. Then you probably should. So you have the ability, I have the ability, not because I'm a preacher, but because we are Christians to explain the story of the gospel to anyone and everyone. I want to close with this. Matthew's gospel. I want to give you some confidence that when you're sharing your faith, that Emmanuel is with you. Matthew's gospel in Matthew 123 says that he is Emmanuel, God with us. So that's the opening chapter. He's God with you. And then in the closing chapter, what does he say? In chapter 28, what does he say? <laughs> I will be with you always. So listen, Emmanuel has come, and Emmanuel remains with us, and one day we will be with Emmanuel forever. That's the message of Christmas, folks. We've got a great message. It doesn't start very well. It doesn't begin very well. It's, it starts in darkness and it sounds depressing and it, and, and it kind of, you know, it kind of grates against uh, what we want to hear. But what does it have within it? Out of darkness has come a great light. There's a great light. 
There's a great story. It's a story of hope. It's a story of redemption. It's a story of salvation. That when we were dead in trespasses and sin, God came in our skin to rescue us from our sin. Let's pray. David is going to come and he's going to lead us in one final song this morning. But as you got your head bowed and your eyes closed there, Listen, I just want to extend to you, those of you in this room and those of you that are watching online, that invitation, that, that Christ's claim is that Christmas is for, is, is for uh, anyone who would believe. And so this morning, if you want to believe, there's, there's nothing mystical or magical about that. It is simply, you, listen, you're trusting something right now for your salvation. You're, you're trusting your good works. Uh, may, maybe you're trusting the family that you were born into. Maybe it's a Christian family. Um, who knows what, you, what else you could be trusting in. There, there are plenty of pathways that people take for salvation. But listen, there, there's only one, and it requires nothing of you but this, that you bring your sin to the God of this world, and you say, Jesus, I give you my sin because you bore my sin on the cross. I believe that you did that for me. I believe that you, there is no other way to be right with God and to be in a relationship with you than that. So I give you my sin, believing that you will in turn give me your righteousness so that I can be your child. No longer your enemy, but your child. If you can articulate that in any way, if your heart can express that in any way to God, listen, here's what the Bible says. With a heart, that's where it begins, we believe and with the mouth that we confess, and we are saved. Father in heaven, in these moments, I pray that you would give people that have never believed in you, never really fully trusted in you as Lord and Savior, I pray that they would bring their sin to you and say, here's the sin that you died for. I give it to you. I believe that your righteousness and your works alone can save me. I believe that. I accept that. And I believe in doing that, that that's what makes me your child. That's what will give me a new heart. That's what will put your uh, Holy Spirit inside of me. And so, Father, we pray that you would give people the ability to do that today. We pray that people that are walking in great darkness will see a great light and be saved. And then for those of us that have experienced that, Father, help us to cease, especially after what we've heard this morning, after we've heard about what our condition was and, and, and how great your love was, how in the world can we keep our story silent? How can we not express what we've experienced to others? Help us to do that, especially in this season. And it's in Christ's name we ask and pray. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing one more song together this morning.